Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't... So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip. Six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brad is out. Look at, look at this. Brad is out. And uh, David Mann. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, welcome aboard John Pielli Passball Show, hour two of the radio program. And we're still going to get into a couple other things. I do want to talk about the Tommy John surgeries and maybe some things that could be done and, you know, to, to prevent it. And listen, uh, the things I'm going to come up with are not, you know, tremendous. They're not going to be mind altering. They're not going to be things that you've never heard before. But I think if you combine them all together, uh, you may be able to prevent some of these surgeries, which I really, truly believe some are unnecessary. We're going to talk a little bit about Ty Cobb and one thing his teammates did for him. But we're going to start out the program here in the second hour by playing an interview that I recorded with former Yankees shortstop Jim Mason. And Jim is going to be known uh, in lore for the New York Yankees, especially if you were a fan of the Yankees that made it to the World Series in 1976 and maybe 1976 comes to mind because that may have been one of the first years you followed baseball or it, it maybe it's just one of those seasons that you're not going to forget but Jim Mason did something that nobody on that entire New York Yankee team of 1976 did and that was hit a home run in a World Series. Remember, the Reds swept the series four games to nothing, and Mason, by that time of his career, was kind of just a platoon-type player, a role player on the bench, a left-hand batter that played against some right-handed pitching, but Fred Stanley was the starting shortstop for the Yankees and got the majority of the time. Now, what it, what had happened to Jim Mason is uh, when Bill Verdon was the manager, he was a guy that uh, Verdon used a lot. And in 1974, Mason got into 152 games, had 110 hits, hit 250 with five home runs, 37 RBIs, and six triples. He was a useful player, obviously not an impact player, but a very good defensive shortstop. But after Verdon was let go as the Yankees manager and Billy Martin took over, um, away went the playing time for Jim Mason, and by 1976, he had gotten into just um, 
93 games, hitting 180 with one home run and 14 RBIs. Now he only hit one home run that season in the regular year, but hit a home run in a World Series. And the only Yankee player to hit a home run in the 1976 World Series, which of course they were swept in four games by the Cincinnati Reds. So uh, great to catch up with Jim Mason, who actually started his career with the Washington Senators, who became the Texas Rangers in 1972, also played for the Toronto Blue Jays, the Rangers again in the Montreal Expos in 1979. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this spot with former Major League shortstop Jim Mason. Good afternoon, this is John Pielli, and I'm happy to be joined by former Major League shortstop Jim Mason. Jim, thanks for having a couple minutes today. Thank you. All right, Jim, if you could go back as far as you could remember... Um, what what would you say got you into baseball? Was it something that you just you just started playing when you were younger, or was it something that you know maybe you learned a little a little later in your childhood? Well, I started a uh, very young life, and it's uh, uh, something I wanted to do all my life. I enjoyed sports. Uh, I really enjoyed baseball, but uh, it was something I wanted to do, and I was just fortunate to be able to do it. Now, now, when you you know when you play, did you play? Uh, you play in high school? Did you play for rec league teams? Maybe a American Legion type? What what what, uh, what type of leagues did you play when you were a kid? We played. I played little league, played Babe Ruth, advanced Babe Ruth, and then I'm you know, played in high school and uh, was going to college to play uh, baseball, basketball, and uh, got a lot of competitive signs, so uh, I and, of course, she signed, if I'm not mistaken, with the Washington Senators, right? That's, that's correct. Um, tell me, if you can, Jim, a little bit about you know, your earliest experiences in the minor leagues. Was this something that you, know, you, you felt yourself uh, you know, go, go up through the system pretty quick? Did you feel like you were having success early on? Did you need any help? Uh, what's the earliest uh, recollection you have about your minor league career? Well, I signed in 68 and played in Geneva, New York, which was a rookie league, and then the next year uh, was the first strike in baseball, and they needed people to go to the big league camp, and they invited me, so I was in 69, and I stayed there to the last day of spring training before going north, so I went from rookie league to AAA, and I played AAA two more years, and then I went to the big league. Now, when you you came up with the uh, with the Rangers in uh, 1972, you had a chance I to. I played my first game in the big leagues in '71. Yes, Washington yes, yeah, in '71, and then you know you had a chance to play around some some very good players when when you were up there. Was there anybody that stood out to you that you kind of just watched the way they played and and kind of mentored yourself after? Not really. I just kind of tried to be who I was and, you know, played as hard as I could and um, hopefully it would, you know, be good enough to get me to the big leagues and or somehow it, it got me there and I stayed a pretty good while and had a, and not a great career, but I, um, you know, it was a career that I was very proud of. And once again, John Pialli here with Jim Mason. Now, you, know, you end up going over to the Yankees, and you end up playing just about the full season in 1974. You get into 152 games. Um, that must have must have felt pretty good to have a chance to go out there and play just about every day at the major league level. Well, the, the biggest thing was uh, Bill Burton was the manager, and uh, he gave me an opportunity, and uh, I just was fortunate enough to be able to take care of it. And, the worst thing I think happened in my career was him getting fired in 75. So, 
Yeah, he absolutely was. And, you know, what, what stands out is that, you know, is you seem to, throughout your career, take a lot of pride in your defense. Was there was there any typical regimen that you had in order to get yourself ready or to make your, make sure you get enough ground balls or, you know, to be at your best defensively? Well, I enjoyed fielding and, uh, you know, you just you know, kind of get to everything you can get to, and that was my whole deal when I played is try to make all the plays and get to as many balls as I could get to and, and uh, you know it was it was a uh, something I took pride in yes and, of course, uh, you know, by 1976, the Yankees start to have some success. They get to the postseason that year, and uh, you end up hitting a home run in the, in, in the World Series, which turns out to be the only home run that the Yankees hit in the four-game sweep at the hands of the Red Sox. What, what do you remember of, about that moment? Uh, well, it was against Cincinnati, so... Uh I remember, I just remember I wasn't playing much in, in the series. Uh, they pitched a lot of left-handed hitters, or pitchers. They pitched uh, Freddie Wolven and Don Gullett, and, uh, and the only game I got in at that was against uh, Pat Zachary. And, uh, and uh, I wanted that at the game. I was fortunate to get a home run. But, you know, it was just something that I don't know why that was, but I got pinch hit for the next time up, so it wasn't, it was not being good enough. <laughs> Yeah, in regards to the the history of Major League Baseball, and I'm sure you're aware of it. You know, you have one postseason at bat, and you hit a home run. It happens to be in a World Series. There's other players that have similar single at bats in postseason series, but you're the only one that has one at bat, and it happens to be a home run. Which, yeah, I'm sure you would have liked to got more, but it, it is something that stands out, and you know, your name's going to be remembered for that. Well, that's correct. Maybe didn't. Maybe Martin did me a favor about pitching. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the following season, Jim, you end up, or after the season, you end up getting taken in the expansion draft by the uh, Toronto Blue Jays. You know, a founding franchise that's just starting. Uh, what were, what was your feeling about you know going to a new team here, a team just starting out? Um, are you feeling maybe this is an opportunity you may get to play a little more? Well, the whole thing was I planned to get away from Billy Martin, and you know, uh, and I was went to Toronto and I was starting to play, and then for some reason I got traded to uh, back to Texas for uh, you know he had there played for Ray Royhouse, and uh, I went to Texas and stayed there kind of uh, that year and next year, and then the next year I got traded to the Montreal Expos. Yeah, Jim, going back through throughout your playing career, once again, John Pialli here with Jim Mason, um, whether it was coming up through the minors or at the major league level, you mentioned Bill Verdon before being a pretty good influence on you and kind of taking a liking to you. Um, was there anybody else that stood out in regards to, let's say, your development or maybe just kind of following a little bit? Like you, you said, hey, maybe they taught you a couple things about how to play shortstop or you followed maybe the way somebody else played at the minor leagues or in the majors? Uh, well, not really. Uh, you know, I played for Whitey Herzog also, and I enjoy playing for Whitey, and uh, uh, he gave me an opportunity. And um, But as far as having anybody that helped me uh, at, at the position, I, I can't really thank anybody. 
you know, I, I, my daddy, my daddy was probably the first, first, most important person in my life. Nah, that's, nah, that's great to hear. I tell you, when you have, you know, a, a, a father-son relationship, and I always remember, you know, my father doing everything he could to help me out and help me become a, a, a better ball player. And every time I hear, you know, a, a professional player talk about his, his father helping him out or kind of mentoring him, you know, that, that, that's pretty special too because, you know, you look at there, there's plenty of environments and uh, communities and stuff where, you know, kids don't don't have that. And I think it's pretty special that, you know, you, you, know, you were able, you know, your dad was able to help you out and, you know, you, you still look back all these years later and have that mean something to you. Well, that's true, and he was a big influence in my life, and uh, I guess of anybody that I, you know, that helped me in baseball was my daddy, yes. All right, Jim, I really appreciate you giving me the time, and like I said, uh, best of luck to you, and thank you again. Thank you. Nice with Jim Mason spending a couple minutes with me right here on the past ball show and talking about some of his experiences in Major League Baseball, and of course the one that stands out, the home run he hit in the 1976 World Series in a game that the Yankees ended up losing. But we're going to go from Jim Mason in 1976 to Ty Cobb. And to me, I don't see too many similarities, though I think if you look at Mason as a ball player, he's a very fundamentally sound player, was probably not as talented as Cobb was, but in my opinion, Cobb was one of the greatest players to ever play the game. And I've said this all along, when I talk about the three best position players in Major League Baseball history, and it's certainly open for debate. I mean, there's guys that I'm not going to mention right now that certainly are up there. And like I said, we keep the discussion interactive, johnpiele.com, the whole thing, tweet at me. But the three greatest position players, in my opinion, of all time are Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, and Ted Williams. And in my opinion, it, it has to do with the fact that they represent three distinct generations and were all the greatest player of their generation. And let's be honest, I mean, if you look at what each one of them accomplished individually, you know, it's hard, it's hard to argue with that. And, of course, you could mention guys like Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and Rogers Hornsby and even Pete Rose for the amount of hits that he got. And, you know, if you want to talk about Mickey Mantle and Joe DiMaggio and, you know, we could go on and on and on. And you could some some could even say the more conventional baseball fan that may want to take performance enhancing drugs out of the equation. You could put guys like Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez up there based off of what they accomplished. But in my opinion, the three greatest position players in the history of Major League Baseball are Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb and Ted Williams. And Ty Cobb, of course, as great of a player as he was, he was he was very well disliked by his opponents, by fans, by, you know, even his teammates in some cases. And what happened on May 18th of 1912 was a showing of unconditional loyalty from a team to a player, whether they liked him or not. And those of you who know your baseball history know that on that date in 1912, Detroit Tigers manager Huey Jennings chose to field a team of replacement players in a game against the Philadelphia Athletics in an effort to avoid a forfeit. The Tigers players refused to play due to the suspension of Cobb for an incident where he attacked the heckler in the stands. It turns out the man he attacked had no arms, which led to his indefinite suspension by Commissioner Ban Johnson. In all honesty, I feel it was a tremendous stand 
for a team to take and something you would never see in today's baseball game. Players are now so obsessed with their pay. Because of the invention of Major League Baseball's Players Union, there's a good chance that it may not even be possible for a team to stand up like that and say, listen, we're not going to play until my teammate's suspension is lifted. And that's, of course, what the Tigers players did. 19 Tigers players refused to play because of the cop's suspension. And Huey Jennings didn't want to lose a ball game. If you go back and you remember the history of the Detroit Tigers, you remember that from 1907 to 1909, they won the American League pennant three years in a row. So 1912, they weren't too far removed from it. So from manager Huey Jennings' perspective, you can't give up a game. And the unfortunate thing is, is when you put a team of replacement players together, you're not expecting to have much of a chance. But Huey Jennings risked that. He said rather than forfeit a game, which is an automatic loss, let's go out there and see what you can do. Hey, maybe maybe catch lightning in a bottle. Maybe one of these players turns out to be a star. He's a diamond in a rough that nobody knows about. But obviously the prospects of the Detroit Tigers winning that game on May 18th, 1912 against the Philadelphia Athletics did not look very good. But you know, back to Cobb, obviously he's suspended uh, indefinitely for attacking the fan in the stands. And let's be honest, I mean, uh, you look at what Cobb did and you say, hey, maybe he was pressed into it and uh, Heckler obviously had to be saying some real nasty remarks. And from what was said, he was called the half N-word. Uh, was taken, you know, as the worst insult you could possibly say at that time for a player. And, uh, you know, Cobb re responded by attacking the fan in the stands. And he ends up setting a, a, a situation where he was not going to be in baseball for a while. And Ban Johnson was pretty adamant about wanting him to be out for what he did and what he said, what he did disgraced the game. And if you look back at it, let, let's see. I mean, a, a guy with no arms getting beat up by a player in the middle of a ball game is, is something that you don't want to use as a model to represent what you stand for as a sport. But let's be honest. I mean, you look at Cobb, Cobb was not liked. And, you know, if you watch the movie Cobb with Tommy Lee Jones, you know that uh, he was a guy that was was not necessarily the the best man. He he was he was a bigot. He was a racist. He was a, a very bad person. He was not very nice to people. He was difficult to be around. He carried a lot of hatred that that stuck with him through when he was when he was younger. When he was, uh, you know, he had a rough childhood with his his father being murdered at the hands of his mother and. Uh, obviously, it affected his mindset. And we're talking about a time where uh, obviously racism was certainly a lot more common than it is now. And of course, in a past ball show, we've touched on, uh, you know, racism in, in, in baseball. And you know about Jackie Robinson breaking a color barrier, what it stood for and where we are as a society now. And the fact that we still need to do a lot of work on it. But before I talk about the game, I want to get into what I started talking about before. And that's the fact that Cobb's teammates stood behind him, no matter how bad his actions were. And, you know, a lot of his teammates, including Sam Crawford, did not get along with Cobb. I mean, there was, there was times where they were known not to speak, and a lot of his teammates disliked him. But it further exemplifies how a team used the definition of the word, and that word is team, of course, and threw aside any personal feelings. Cobb may have been hated, but there was not a player on that team 
that was not going to be in a foxhole with each and every teammate, including Cobb. Now, Huey Jennings, he was in a tough predicament. The pride of being a 17-year MLB player and in his sixth year as a major league manager kept him from wanting to simply forfeit the game. Conventional wisdom would say that any amateur, semi-pro, or other team assembled would probably embarrass the Tigers. Perhaps the thought of a forfeit would have been more embarrassing to Jennings. He decided to field a team of semi-pro and amateur players, like I said, some who have never even played the sport. And they play in this game against the Philadelphia Athletics, led by their manager, Connie Mack. Remember, the Athletics were in the midst of one of their best runs in the history of their franchise, winning the World Series in 1910 and 1911. And, of course, you know about the Tigers, like I mentioned, the three straight AL pennants from 7-9. to Jennings himself would actually get into this game, getting a pinch hit at bat late. Coaches Deacon McGuire and Joe Sugden would play in the game. The coaches would get two of the team's four hits against the Athletics, a game won by Philadelphia 24-2. Sugden, who hadn't played in a game since 1905, was one for four. McGuire, who had played 26 seasons but hadn't played a full season since 1906, uh, you know, and ends up making some sporadic appearances as a coach, getting into a couple games from 1907 to 1910. But the rest of the players on the team, they failed to make a big league appearance in another game except one by a third baseman by the name of Billy Morang, who went 0-1 in the 1912 game. Morang would later appear for the Philadelphia Phillies in 1916, going 0-1 in a game that season. What stands out in the 24-2 loss is that their starting pitcher, a guy by the name of Aloysius Travers, pitched all eight innings, and of course the game was in Philadelphia, so you know nine innings were not necessary to pitch, but he yielded all 24 runs. 14 of them earned. He gave up 26 hits, walked seven, and struck out three in a game. That was his only big league appearance. Third baseman Ed Irvin was two for three. Both hits were triples, and Irvin would never play in another major league game. That would be the only one he'd ever play in. After the game, the Tigers players rescinded their protest at the urging of Cobb. And Ty Cobb, uh, as much of a team player as he was, I'm sure he appreciated what his teammates did to help him and to throw their support and show that they cared, but says, listen, we can't have a group of replacement players playing all these games. Go back out there and win these games in spite of me not being there. Now, let's be honest. Let's, 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 let's switch it from 1912 to now because we're talking about something that happened over 100 years ago. Think about an event leading to a suspension of a player in today's age of baseball. The players' union supports the players, like I mentioned before, and the league gives them the option to appeal the suspension. So we're talking about any suspension, whether it's an action on the field, whether it's an action off the field, whatever leads to a suspension handed down by the commissioner or the league's governing body, uh, the player has the right to appeal because of the players' union and everything that Marvin Miller did and moving on with Donald Fear and Gene Orza and late Michael Weiner and now Tony Clark, who heads the Players Association, um, you know, you look at everything that's happened and it's going to be hard. It would be hard for a team to do what the 1912 Tigers did. So it's unlikely any team would refuse to play a game in protest. There's more of a chance that a team forfeits a game. See what happened with the Washington Senators, the last game before they moved to Texas on September 30th of 1971. Ten Cent Beer Night, which was in 1974, Disco Demolition Night, or the Dodgers Ball Giveaway in 1995. Also during the game in 1977, or- Orioles manager 
Earl Weaver deliberately forfeited a game to the Blue Jays in Exhibition Stadium after a lengthy argument over a tarp that Weaver deemed unsafe. He ends up pulling his team off the field and end up forfeiting that game. But forfeits, uh, though they're not very common, let's be honest. I'm, uh, I'm naming a handful of them, and those are probably the only forfeits, if I'm not mistaken, in the last several, several seasons. So teams would probably forfeit a game before they consider put bringing out a group of replacement players. And let's be honest, you go to the 94 strike and uh, those who cross the picket lines and the scabs and uh, the thought of lesser than major league players going out there and playing a game that's supported by the union and everything that's involved with that, that would certainly be looked down upon. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was a protest any other way. If a team was uh, assembling a group of replacement players to play in any sort of competitive professional game, I'm sure the group of players that are part of the players union would stand there and picket and maybe picket the gates and tell no fans to buy tickets and stuff like that. But 1912, we're talking about a different time. We're talking about a time where players didn't have very many rights. And one of the few rights they had was to launch a protest like this. And you look at what's, what ends up happening and, you know, Ty Cobb, a guy that was very well disliked. And like I said, including by some of his teammates or several of his teammates, the team went out there and did the right thing. And they supported their player, their teammate. And Cobb would end up being reinstated relatively shortly after that and go on to have his Hall of Fame career and become the all-time hits leader. His hits record ends up staying until 1985 when Pete Rose broke it. And, of course, he also owns the record for the highest batting average in Major League Baseball history at 366. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Don't forget to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. What we're going to do is we're going to take a break. And on the other side, we're going to get into a couple of things I'm talking about with the Tommy John surgery and maybe some ways that, you know, hopefully uh, this phenomenon, this terrible thing that's going on with all these pitchers uh, having this operation and missing a lot of time, uh, maybe there are some things that could be done. Uh, whether they're minuscule, whether maybe some of them might even be considered a little silly, but some things that could possibly be done to minimize the amount of operations that are going on and the amount of pitchers that are going under the knife year in and year out. So we'll be right back after this. And once again, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show. Hey guys and gals, want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WINGS. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there! 
You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. And you're listening to MTR Radio. A flippin' out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thank you for joining me. And, of course, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. Don't forget to check out Bases Empty Blog on JohnPielli.com, where I write a couple articles every week. We talk about historical baseball as well as conventional baseball and everything in between. And if you go back really the past two and a half years, I mean, just about any topic in regards to baseball, I've probably touched on at some point. So just uh, there's a search engine right up at the top. You type in what you want to see my opinion about. And, uh, you know, a bunch of articles, if not one article, will come up in regards to what you want to talk about. But what what I kind of got into last week, and, you know, it's something that you hear all the time in baseball in regard whether you're talking to a couple people at a bar or, you know, you turn on MLB Network or you're watching your favorite team's telecast. Uh, the topic of Tommy John surgery is certainly going to be brought up. Because every team, all 30 of them, no matter what, uh, are probably dealing at least with two or three pitchers that are either under the knife, um, they're either recovering from the surgery or about to have it. You find out guys like Jose Fernandez and, you know, whoever the latest pitcher to go down and end up having the operation and being out for about a full year, somebody is obviously talking about it. But obviously some other perspectives can be all right well this operation is needed in so many different cases is there anything that could happen or anything can be done to prevent it and uh, you know what what i said before and what i said to pretty much start off my article the quick answer to the long question of are preventive measures being taken to avoid arm injuries in baseball is no well the long answer can discuss all and every ways pitchers and baseball are being treated differently than ever before. And I think that's a fact. And the fact that technology exists as it does today is certainly a blessing to all ball players, especially pitchers. You think of Sandy Koufax and the fact that his career ended so abruptly after such a dominating run, you realize that Sandy Koufax maybe could have had a Tommy John-like surgery on his elbow, which could have saved his career. Art Mahaffey, who was a guest on the show in the first hour, pitched for the Phillies from 1960 to 1965 and the Cardinals in 1966, told me that he pitched through a rotator cuff tear the last couple of years of his career. In fact, 
the way it was before the increase of technology, pitchers had no choice but to either toughen it out or quit. In some cases, pitchers were able to pitch through the pain, but in others, the man's career was simply over. When a pitcher's arm went out, so did his MLB career. From that perspective, you could say that Tommy John's surgery, which obviously is a surgery to repair a tear in UCL, uh, surgery to repair a torn anterior capsule muscle, or rotator cuff surgery may have saved a lot more pitchers' careers than it ended up hurting. But does that mean that each and every MLB pitcher that has an operation like this could absolutely have not pitched through it? Has every operation totally been necessary? Those are two interesting questions, and the answer to both of them are probably no. But it's pointless to go through each and every operation and try to decipher which ones are necessary and which ones the pitchers could have pitched through. But I'm sure there are some that may have not been necessary. What we do know is this. Arm injuries have been around since the beginning of baseball. It is not natural for a human being to throw a baseball at an exorbitant amount of times from different angles for a considerable amount of years and have no damage, whether it's structural or maybe stress related to the shoulder or the elbow. I mean, you're, you're, you're throwing it, you know, in a, what's an unnatural motion. Yes, it, it, it's okay. The muscles and the tendons and the, the bones and everything are meant to go a certain way, but they're not meant to crank it up and throw the ball a hundred plus times, uh, you know, whether it's every five days or whatever you do. So those who ought to come up with the hypothesis or the reasoning and say that, hey, there's never been these kind of injuries, I think it's a little silly. That's a little bit uh, kind of sounding uneducated because these injuries have always existed since the inception of baseball. But, you know, obviously the difference is that doctors can now see with their own eyes the damage to the muscles, the tendons, or the bones in a pitcher's arm. Because of this, the options that pitchers have uh, to pitch through an injury like this probably doesn't exist because once you're diagnosed uh, with a tear or, or an injury within your arm, the next step is going to be either what, all right, are you going to pitch through it? Are you going to rehab or are you going to have surgery? Get Guess one, guess which one has become obsolete, the pitching through it. It just doesn't happen now. But what does not make sense is how many do not understand the basics in preventing arm injuries. I'm no doctor, of course I'm not. I don't even try to play one on TV. But when a 10 to 12 year old kid is throwing a curveball, odds are it's gonna mess up their arm, shoulder, or elbow sooner rather than later. Because a kid at that age has no idea how to throw a curveball. They may be taught by a coach or a father who may, who may have been trying to live their own glory through their kids, but what you realize, and a lot of people don't realize, you're damaging the arm of your kid. So uh, the one in a million chance that that child has of being a great player and having a chance to pitch professionally is probably shot at age 10 or 12 when you're teaching him to throw a freaking curveball. And uh, Denny McLean was on my show about a month back, and he said that he didn't even learn to throw the curveball until he was pitching professionally already. It wasn't until Frank Larry of the Tigers taught him how to, how to throw a curveball, and he was already pitching in major league games. So it, it, it's it's something that a lot of a lot of people now are feeling that their kids or kids on their team can have a distinct advantage at such a young age by throwing uh, these pitches that are really unnatural for kids to throw, especially when they don't have any idea on how to really throw it.
And when it gets to a higher level, and we're talking about coaches, and we're taking the parents out of it, how much do the coaches really care about the well-being of the pitcher itself or the kid? Let's be honest, not very much. And, you know, if they're, if they're gifted, the coach wants to ride them out and they want to win. And at lower levels, especially when we're talking about pre-high school sometimes, and even high school, who cares if your high school team wins a freaking championship? Does it really have to be at the expense of the health of a pitcher's arm down the road? A lot of high school coaches can really give a shit. And it, it's, it's not it's not fair to those kids who are taught at such a young level to pitch competitively and want to win. And, you know, you see sometimes down in Little League and these people do everything they possibly can to win. They don't realize the arms that they're ruining in the process. And obviously, you look at some other things going on with it. The Part of the problem is the fact that Tommy John has become extremely popular because pitchers are, in some cases, coming back stronger and have more success after the surgery than they did before it. That leads many to think that the operation is an enhancement and will always work out to make the pitcher better. What a lot of people don't realize is the fact that the surgery is not 100% science. In fact, it's far from that. I would bet that those that have the operation without it being completely necessary would have less of a chance of becoming a better pitcher after it's done. However, I don't have the numbers to back that up. The million dollar question is what can be done to prevent these type of injuries? We could talk about the pitch count. Should it be mandatory? Is it mandatory? Pitchers are throwing unlimited pitches in high school and college, and all of a sudden they're on a limit once they become a professional. Does that make any sense? A guy who's throwing 100, 120 pitches, a kid, all of a sudden is told that they can't throw that many pitches. So number one, you're totally taking a person out of their comfort zone and putting them in a situation where they're not used to throwing as many pitches. I would bet that that has something to do with arm injuries down the road. And what happens when they end up uh, making it three, four, five years down the road and that manager at the major league says, hey, he's ready to go 120 pitches. He hasn't done it in four or five years. Does that lead to some arm injuries as well? I think so. I think it makes a little sense. I got a chance to speak with former Major League catcher Greg Zahn about three, four months back, and he told me the real reason that he stopped playing after 16 MLB seasons and 21 seasons professionally. It turns out it had little to do with the wear and tear on his knees, but more to do with the change in the action of the young pitchers. Zahn's uncle was Rick Dempsey. Dempsey played 24 seasons in Major League Baseball, and either Dempsey or Zahn were playing baseball professionally from the years of 1967 to 2010. Zahn says that there has been a complete change in the attitude of the young pitcher. They seldom follow the simplest set of instructions and simply want to do things their own way. Few pitch to location. They just rear back and fire. Little is done nowadays to teach a pitcher to throw to spots. That affects arm angles, and pitchers have a difficult time repeating the motion. Whether the proof is there or not, I bet there would be less arm injuries if pitchers did what they did before, and that's learn to pitch to spots in the minors. It certainly helps to be able to repeat the same motion consistently and have a little bit of a clue of where the ball is going. And let's be honest, the, the stud starting pitcher, the young pitcher, is calling his own shots for the most part. Uh, remember, Steven Strasburg could not convince the Nationals not to shut him down the season they made it to the playoffs. But what about Tim Lincecum? He comes into the game and says he's not going to listen to anybody but his dad. 
a veteran coach or catcher in the minors, has nothing on a pitcher who already is being paid and is the future of the organization. So if there's any dispute, guess what? The coach is getting fired or the catcher is getting released before anything is said to the pitcher. You have a group of young, unproven, rich pitchers who are dictating what they should do and throw. And it never used to be that way. I feel they're leading themselves to injuries simply because they don't want to listen and they do what they want. Another point can be brought up when I spoke to Denny McLean about a month back. He was he was one who certainly benefited from the mound prior to when it was lowered after the 1968 season. He went 31 and 6 in 1968 and is the last pitcher to ever win 30 games. However, he suffered from arm problems and was finished pitching in the majors by 1972. He puts a lot of the blame on the mound being lowered and feels that if it was raised, there would be less arm injuries. Baseball would be against it because obviously the the mound being lowered increased the offensive production and took a distinct advantage away from the pitchers. Perhaps more should be looked into the strain of a pitcher throwing for more of a flat surface as opposed to a higher mound. In all honesty, there's no true formula to saving pitchers from this sad stage of Tommy John surgeries, but maybe put a little attention to a couple different things from a couple different angles, I'm sure the amount can be reduced. Once again, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. And right now I'm joined by a third baseman that played for the Boston Red Sox from the years of 1955 to 1965. In fact, in 1957, he was the first ever third baseman to win the Gold Glove Award, the only year that they gave the award out for all of Major League Baseball as opposed to individual leagues. And that year, he hit 292, 15 home runs, 103 runs batted in, and had several very good seasons playing third base for the Boston Red Sox. And that's Frank Malzone. And Frank, I really appreciate you giving me a couple minutes today. Um, first thing I want to ask you, Frank. Tell me a little bit about when you, you know, when, when you first signed and your first experience playing baseball professionally. Well, uh, when I first signed, I was uh, signed out on a, actually, uh, I graduated high school, and then I, I was asked by one of the scouts if I'd be interested in professional baseball, and uh, I jumped at the, t- at the chance, and, and that's how I got started, and I played, uh, played a lot of minor league baseball before I got a chance to play in the big league, so, and that, that was... That was about the extent of what I had to do to get to the big leagues and, and be uh, patient that it was going to happen sometime. Not knowing it, it did happen. You know, I, I just, uh, I, it, it, it's not an easy job. Everybody says, oh, you're going to be in pro ball. Yeah, sure. But uh, next thing you know, you've got you've to work at it to get there. Now what? It goes, and that goes for the best, that goes for the worst, too. It is something you have to do. It is very, very nerve-wracking. You know, you have to, you have to produce and uh, and stay with the game. If you if you don't understand what's going on at the game, you're never going to get any place. Now, what I what I notice about you, Frank, is that you you spent you know quite a, quite a bit of years, about four or five years in the minors, and then you ended up getting drafted into the service. Uh, obviously, that was probably a little bit of a distraction. You were probably close to being ready to play in the big leagues by by the time you ended up going in the military, right? Yeah. Well, I, I was. Uh, I was uh, 
John Pialli here with Frank Malzone. Now, when you when when you played in the majors, one thing that stood out was the fact that you were a very good defensive third baseman. Was this was defense something that you took a lot of pride in, even when you were younger, when you were a kid? Well, uh, it was it was something that you had to do. You know, we we uh, we played the game the way it's supposed to be played. And uh, we made the plays. If if we didn't make it, it's, it's an error or whatever. But, but, but we we played the game, and, and, and it was not the greatest field, but they were good enough to to know whether it's an error of baseball. But I was always uh, watching what was going on because that's how you learn how to play. And I think that's what kids got got a lot to do. They 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 sort of go to go okay pro ball and they just sit around and fool around and you know they get a hit so what they don't you know that stuff uh, they just gotta they gotta watch what's going on and understand what the pitchers are doing to hitters this next part of getting it to the big leagues Oh, of course, and uh, you know the first year of the the Gold Glove Award happened to be your first season in the major leagues. Um, what what is the fact that you won the Gold Glove multiple times? What what does that mean to you? Three a three time Gold Glove winner. Well, at the, that was just so happened that they, they they started the thing that year, and I was one of my first years to make the Gold Glove, and. Uh, and there was only, and they only picked nine. First year, they only picked nine guys. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was only, only one team. It wasn't National League and American League. It was, it was just a, just a Gold Glove Award winners. And I got the first one for third baseman, so the rest of every, everybody else, uh, you know, got, got the, whoever got a Gold Glove that year was, has, has just one name on it. I mean, this one you believe. Yeah. I always, I always just kid Bruce Robinson. I said, Bruce, you got 18, but you ain't got a good one that I got. <laughs> and he said, what? I said, no. Yeah. What I got says American League, uh, I mean, uh, go, uh, uh, net, uh, no glove winner in the, in the Major League. Major League. It doesn't say uh, American League. It says Major League. And that... I used to uh, kid around with Rookie. Because we were good friends. So, what the heck? Yeah, we did that. And uh, uh, later on, I said, yeah, you'll, get, you'll get enough if you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> and it was true. He was a good player. We always had the competition. But I tell you what, the Gold Glove is uh, quite an honor. They don't take it serious enough that it. it Probably in baseball, they just throwing out of there, so what, you know? Uh, the, the, the home, they're hitting the baseball 
is the main thing, I guess, uh, what every, every player wants to do. I personally, I personally take pride in playing the game the right way, and that's the way I like to play. No, very true, and I tell you, you know, it definitely stands by, you know, you look at everything that you, you were able to accomplish. As you were coming up, in either in, in the big leagues or maybe before, was there a player, a coach, or a manager that kind of stood out to you that you could, that kind of really maybe took you under their wing or you thought was a big influence on you? It was not really. Uh, there was a couple I always talked to because I know what, what information they gave me is going to be the right one. And I was ready for Tosky and, uh, and, uh, and, a, and a, a third base coach. I forgot his name. My first year I could go in there when I was in, uh, I, was in uh, I forgot what league it was. But he was he's my manager and a and coach at first at third base. They, they, they seem to grow on you, and they, and they just, there's some, some little they say, and it sinks in your mind, and then, and then you go from there. Now, when you you played for several years with with the Boston Red Sox, um, was was there anybody on your team that stood out that you felt that was uh, the, you know the ultimate leader or the best teammate in your mind? Uh, no, I couldn't tell you no. Uh, I would not, uh, I don't, I don't put guys in category. I know, I know when I do did something good, I know what I did, and I know what somebody else is going to think. It, it's, it's, different. It, it's, it's, it's not easy to put, put a guy in a kind of category that, you know, and, uh, and you can put it any way you like. You can, you can mention it any way you like, though. No, no, that's fair, that's fair enough. Uh, and and in, in regards to your career in Boston, you obviously you spent a lot of time there. You had uh, a lot of success. Yeah, you drove in over a hundred runs a couple times each season. What do you What do you think was the best team that you played for? Oh, in all your seasons in Boston, which team you you really feel was the best team that you played for? Oh well. Uh the best one was this one thirty years. You know, we I I really uh, I can't judge them. I just go out and I play. I worry about me. I'm not gonna worry about the rest I understand. Of and that's the way I play. And if I don't play that way, I could I can't do that. I wasn't a big guy. I was a guy that could play, could run, and uh, get things done, and and stayed in the ballgame. I, I was. I just tried to get it the right way, and that's the way I, I always was, and uh, I'm not going to change. And it, it is, it is touching, touching to put people in categories. It's easy for you sometimes, you writers, to do it because you write the story, and we don't mind if you do that. We just, uh, we just, just don't care. We just don't like to do it. We just say, oh well, that's an opinion. Let, let's go from there. And I, I. I uh, that's what I feel. No, no, I, I, I appreciate it. It's, you know, something that, you know, from my, from my end, because I didn't play, you know, I, I don't know that. So I, pre I appreciate you, you letting me know about it. Um, the, the Red Sox Hall of Fame, uh, you were in, inducted there in 1995. That, that had to pre be a pretty, pretty good experience, right? Yeah, well, it was a, it was a, it was a first year, again, for the old, uh, well, the Hall of Fame, the Red Sox Hall of Fame, so I mean, uh, 
chance to catch up with Frank there and of course Frank uh, you know it is in his 80s 84 years old the guy that certainly is a baseball lifer a guy that was uh, you know really started his baseball career around the time of the Korean War and spent a couple years in the service and eventually uh, makes it to the big leagues and plays from the years of 1955 to 1966 and uh, was certainly a part of the memories of the history of the Boston Red Sox and great to see him honored in the Red Sox Hall of Fame, which he's, he's been there for almost 20 years now. Since 1995, he is a Hall of Fame Red Sox player, and he's certainly honored as, as he very well deserves to be. But you know, last thing I want to touch on before we end the program today, and once again, thanks for joining me. This is John Pielli here, Past Ball Show, right here on the MTR Radio Network, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. is. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about it with the Tommy John injuries, but in general, it seems to be an increase in the amount of significant injuries in Major League Baseball. And Prince Fielder is going to miss the rest of the season as he's going to have surgery. And uh, Felix DeBrant from the Boston Red Sox looks like uh, he's going to be out for an extended period of time. And of course, Cliff Lee who was the latest to have that fear of the possibility of having some sort of major arm operation, maybe Tommy John surgery. And, you know, it's good to see that the prognosis seems a little better for Lee than it's been for some of the other pitchers, mainly Jose Fernandez. You know, how, how exciting would it have been to see Jose Fernandez pitch this year? In addition to being a bright spot on a team that was not expected to contend, but an up-and-coming Marlin team that seems to be playing better baseball. Just watching him pitch every fifth day is, uh, you know, is, is is great for a fan to watch, and it's a shame that he's not going to be uh, pitching for a while. And uh, you know, same thing with you know Matt Harvey from last year, and you know, it's it's a shame that these injuries are coming to fruition, and you know, as teams are trying to generate themselves, and this is what separates sometimes the difference between winning teams and losing teams. Sometimes is injuries. Look what happened to the Yankees last year. But big thanks to Art Mahaffey and, of course, to Frank Malzone and Jim Mason for being part of the program. This is John Pielli, the Pass Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Just a reminder, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. Check out JohnPielli.com, Bases Empty Blog, and like my Facebook page, JohnPielli.com. See you next week. Rock over London, rock on Chicago. American Airlines, we mean business in Chicago.